It's always good to see the fellowship of the body of Christ ministering to one another. It might be strange on radio, but today we're going to look at Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, look at two of the seven churches that Jesus dictated letters to through the Apostle John while John was on the Isle of Patmos. He was there as a prisoner for the crime of preaching the gospel. And while the Lord had him there on that island, he gave him this revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus revealed to the Apostle John nearly 2,000 years ago. And it speaks much about the last days. And yet we learned from our first study in the book of Revelation that there are a couple of uh, things that the Lord has given us from chapter 1 that's worth repeating. This month's memory verse at our church is Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So a threefold blessing that the Lord has given to those who read, those who hear, and those who keep the words of this prophecy and the things that are written in it. And the Lord has promised a blessing to those who are willing to invest in the book of Revelation. Yet, in our churches today, here in the United States, there are many churches that shy away from the book of Revelation They say it's a book that we possibly could not understand. And Jesus did not say, I want you to notice that he did not say, blessed is he who understands the words of these prophecies. He said, blessed is he who reads, he who hears, and those who keep. And there are things that we can keep concerning this word that the Lord has given to us. And the Lord told John in chapter 1 again, verse 19, and it will be next month's memory verse for us. Revelation, I think it will be at least, Revelation 1, 19. Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so he gives three divisions of the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen, chapter 1. He's seen the glorified Christ revealed himself to John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He saw the Lord standing in his majesty, there holding seven stars in his hand and among the seven golden candlesticks or lampsticks as it's written here. But the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches that existed during the time of John, that Jesus actually had John, Jesus dictated letters that John recorded and sent to the seven churches. So the things that are and the things which will take place after this. Now that kind of leaves the chapter four through the end of the book kind of open. The things which will take place after this, the prophetic portion of the book of Revelation that we'll begin looking at in a few weeks. Now we have seven churches that we're going to look at and It's hard to divide seven evenly, so I was thinking maybe I could do three churches this week and four. It would be like cramming them in for me especially. Um, I want to get to the meat of the Word of God, 
and not just glance over it quickly. And so what I decided to do is to take two churches a week and immediately you're doing math in your head. John, two times three is six, but two times three is not seven. So you have a problem. You have one church left over. Correct. And what we will do with that last church is to do a review and look at and I'm going to mention briefly in the first um, with the seven churches, but that last teaching, we're going to look at a historical look at the seven churches, how they kind of played out through history. I will mention them, but I won't go into detail on them until our last study. And so that will allow us to have a review of the seven churches, also look at the church of Laodicea, but also see how they're playing out in the world through history and also currently in a our world today. And although there were more churches in Asia Minor at this time, these seven churches are representative of the churches that existed then, the things which are, but also representative of the churches that exist now in our world today. And as I mentioned, we'll review how these played out in history. And those who have looked at this from historical setting, they have dated a timeline from the time of John, all the way through the current day, and taking each church and giving its timeline of what was going on. We'll look at two of those churches today. But in that timeline, it would have us in the church age of Laodicea. And that is not a a great age to be in, the lukewarm church. But we'll get to that in a few weeks. Today, we're going to be looking at two churches, the loveless And the suffering is the title that I have given our lesson today. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 11. And we're going to have two main points. The loveless church, verses 1 through 7. The suffering church, verses 8 through 11. And historically, there are some who disagree with this, but this is where I play into the understanding of the book of Revelation. Some would disagree. But historically, John is writing some 60 plus years after the Lord's resurrection. Actually, at this time, then a new generation of believers would have been sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to their generation. And some of the old generation, the first generation of believers, like the Apostle John, he's believed to be in his 90s when he's writing this. They're just they're on their way out very soon. So. It's kind of a a season of passing the torch. The church has been birthed. The church has spread to the then known world at that time. And over time, issues have begun to develop within the churches. Jesus is going to deal with some of those issues. And we'll see two of these churches today as we're looking at this. Before we get into the seven churches, before we look at the loveless church, I want to just remind us that there's actually a layout that Jesus used for each of the churches, that every church has this similar format in the letter. He outlined it like it was a message that was meant to be preached to people. First of all, it begins with point one. We see Jesus, and in point one, in the opening verses of each of the letters to each of the churches, Remember, they didn't have verses. It was just a letter that was written to them. But in the opening of that letter, 
the Lord spoke of himself and then used a portion of what John had saw there in chapter one, the description of the Lord. And Jesus uses a portion of that description to each of the churches, which is significant. And we'll look at those as we go through each church. Secondly, in the second point of the letter, if it was divided in a sermon as I it lays out so well, in every church, Jesus said, I know, I know your works. And he would go on from there, but each church, each of the seven churches, Jesus said, I know what's going on in your fellowship. I know. And then he would explain the things that he saw within their church. It's a good reminder for us that Jesus knows. He knows the condition of our fellowship. He knows the size of our church. He knows those who perhaps who should be here, who are not, and uh, those who come more out of religious duty than a faith in Jesus Christ. He knows these things, and he's going to reveal his knowledge to the seven churches as we go through it. And third, to each of the church churches, he gives a promise to those who overcome. Now, five of the seven churches were not doing so well in the sight of Christ. He had a lot of negative things to say about them. But all seven churches, Jesus said, to those who overcome. There was a promise in every church, for every church, to those who would overcome. And he had specific promises that he would lay out to them. So, first of all, he revealed himself from chapter 1, a glimpse of what John had already seen. In chapter 1, he takes that to the letters of the seven churches. Secondly, he tells the seven churches, I know, I know your works. And he goes on to describe that. And third, even if the church like Laodicea, the lukewarm church, there was a promise to the overcomers. That gives me a confidence. No matter what church we might see in our country, and perhaps uh, there are churches like, man, they are so off base, we might say, concerning some church. Realize that within the fellowship of that church, there are true believers there. The possibility of the Lord working in someone's heart. And even in a church that doesn't teach the truth of the gospel, the Lord can get his truth into the hearts of individuals. And there can be overcomers in every single church. I know it's hard for us to see and hard for us to understand sometimes, but the Lord gave a clear message of that to these churches where at the end of the five that had a lot of trouble, Jesus did not say, you guys are messed up until you get straightened out. I'll see you later. He said, no, to those who overcome, there was the promise to the overcomers. So let's go ahead and we'll look at, uh, I'll read the context of our first church, the Loveless Church. And I'll open us in prayer and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, 
that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, Father, we pray your blessing upon the teaching of your word today. Lord, we ask that you would, according to the promise of your word, bless those who would read, those who hear, and those who keep the words of this prophecy. In the name of Jesus, amen. So one of the best resources that we have concerning the church in Ephesus regarding the church is found in the New Testament itself. We have chapters in the book of Acts that describes the ministry there in Ephesus. And then we have an epistle that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And so we can gather quite a bit of information about the church and its founding and also some of the issues that were going on that Paul addressed in his epistle to the fellowship itself. And so it's always good if you're able, some of these churches, we have no other information than what is given to us in the book of Revelation. Like the next church, Smyrna, it's only named twice. Smyrna is only named twice in the Bible, and it's found here in our text today. So we have just a wonderful um, reference to the church in Ephesus, the work that God was doing there, where Paul wrote to the Ephesians while he is in prison, somewhere around A.D. 61 to 63. We also have his exploits as a missionary as he served them at the end of his second missionary journey, but also as he served them during his third missionary journey as found in Acts chapters 18 through 20. We first read about Ephesus when Paul came to Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla and at that time it was at the end of his second missionary journey and he actually reasoned in the synagogue as his custom was to preach to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles now there were there was openness from the Jews they actually invited Paul to remain to stay with them continue to teach the word of God there in the synagogue but Paul had made a vow and the vow that he had made would find its fulfillment at the temple in Jerusalem. So he was on a a schedule, we might say. It's like, I would love to stay, but uh, I made this covenant, this vow to the Lord. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to go to the temple. No doubt there was an offering that had to be made through Paul to complete this vow that he had made. He said, but if the Lord wills it, I will return to you. But right now I need to leave. And that's where he left it. There was seemingly success. Here's the thing. Paul was being guided by the Spirit of the Lord and his commitment to the Word of the Lord. Sometimes we find that we might get in a place where there might seem to be success in ministry, but it's not time for us to invest in that ministry. Maybe the Lord is opening a door, but there's some things that need to take place first, and we need to kind of step back. I'll use my own example as a young pastor at a church in Zion, Illinois, when the senior pastor left the fellowship and he uh, told the church at that time, I'd like John to 
fill in for me until you find a new pastor to be the interim pastor. And so that's what I did, I think, for a period of eight months while they looked for a new pastor and and would uh, get a new pastor to watch over that fellowship. And I was, at that time, kind of cutting my teeth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was actually teaching through the book of Acts to the fellowship there. And I was, it was an exciting time. People were actually, surprisingly, they were getting saved. They were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The church was actually growing during that eight-month period. And there was a glimmer of, I believe for me and Lily, there was a glimmer of what the Lord had for us one day, but that was not the day for us. It was not the place for us. There was going to be in my future uh, a trip, Lily's as well, as we took our family out to California. I had to, according to the will of the Lord, spend two years at Calvary Costa Mesa, go to the School of Ministry before um, becoming the pastor of this fellowship. But even when I finished the School of Ministry, I graduated in 1994. I didn't become the pastor of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa until 1999. There was still a period of waiting and the Lord was working. So sometimes we can see an effective work begin to take place. And the Lord says, yes, someday, but not right now. I have a few things that you need to do first. And this is where we find Paul when he first ministered in Ephesus. And it was that the Lord's will was that he would return. He did return. But while he was gone, God used at least three people to water the soil there in the church of Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila remained there and they found a brother who was knowledgeable in the word of God. He was teaching what he had learned from John the Baptist. So he was teaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is coming. He had the message of the gospel correct up to the point of John the Baptist but he had not known that the Messiah had come. And so Aquila and Priscilla, being great uh, man and woman of God, they shouted out in the midst of that teaching and said, Apollos, you got it all wrong. No, that's not exactly what they did. What they did was after the service, I assume, it tells us, Scripture tells us, that they took Apollos to the side. And they said, let us tell you the rest of the story. You're doing great. You got most of it, but the Messiah has come. He has died. He's resurrected from the grave. The gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. And Apollos believed, received Jesus Christ as his Savior. He became a powerful force for the gospel. He was watering the soil there before Paul's return. In fact, he requested letters from Ephesus that he would go to Corinth and minister there. And so while Paul was returning to Ephesus. Apollos was going to Corinth where Paul had planted a church to continue the ministry there. And then Paul was coming to Ephesus to continue the work that Apollos began to do there in Ephesus. And so the Bible tells us in Acts 19.10, and so it was that Paul returned to Ephesus and remained with them for more than two years. And the Bible says, I'm quoting Acts 19.10, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. 
We know through the missionary journeys of Paul that he wanted to minister in Asia, but the Lord prevented him from going there. God had a different plan, a different course for Paul's life. Paul wanted to go to Asia. He tried to get there a couple of different ways. God kept closing the door. God revealed to him a Macedonian saying, come to us through a dream. God had a different plan. He ended up in Corinth. But on the third missionary journey, Paul then, and here's the thing, Paul planted himself in one city. He taught the people, and as he taught the people, the people caught the vision of the word of God, and they spread out from that one city, Ephesus, until all of Asia had heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those today who believe that the church is not important in our world today, that the church buildings are like, let's just get rid of them. Let's get out into the streets. Yes, we are to get out into the streets, but I believe that there is an importance for a fellowship planted in a community. To have a building like this one has been planted in our community since the 1960s. We haven't been a Calvary Chapel since 1960s, but this has been a church since the 1960s. A place where the Word of God has been taught and people have went forth from this place to continue their work in the ministry. And so God sometimes plants us in a single place in order that others might be sent forth. God had a plan to reach Asia with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but Paul was not the man who would be the one preaching in Asia. Paul was the one who was teaching those who would be sent to Asia. So sometimes the Lord calls us to be the professor, (laughs) to teach the students, and the students go forth. Historically, in Roman times, Ephesus bore the title of the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was distinguished for the Temple of Diana, which was her chief Shrine, the chief shrine of Ephesus was the temple of Diana. And this came about by this meteor that fell from the sky and came to the earth. And people saw this meteor that's like, well, that's weird looking. And somehow in their mind, it's like, oh, it looks like a woman with six breasts. That's the shrine that they set up, a temple. And the then known world would come there to worship this rock that fell out of the sky. Mankind, when left to their own demise, will do the weirdest things. A rock fell from the heavens? Let's go worship that. Let's build a temple to it. Just uh, several years ago, maybe 15 years ago now, over at Grant's Wood, there was an oak tree in the forest reserve over there that is there now. It was, at the time, believed one of the oldest oak trees in Lake County. Well, it got hit by lightning and it fell over, and so... Um, I knew one of the guys that worked for the park district, and he said, we were there, chainsaws ready, getting ready to chop the tree up, and they got a word on the radio. It's like, stop everything, walk away from it. Uh, We can't cut it up right now. And so they left. They can't cut up a tree that was struck by lightning. So what they found out was that there was a guy who would go and speak to this tree, and the tree would tell him things about this area. It was a spiritual memorial to this family. And so they had to do a service for the tree that got struck by lightning in Grant Wood just 
less than a half mile from here. Weird, huh? <laughs> People will worship the oddest things. Ultimately, they, Lake County did cut up the tree. I don't know if they have pieces and across the world of this tree that people are worshiping that came from Lake County, Illinois. I have no idea about that, but it was just a tree. Yet someone worshiped that tree. In fact, Ephesus had an amphitheater that could seat up to 50,000 people. And so that, think about some of our greater stadiums here in the United States for the sports. Uh, Wrigley Field gets like 41,000, I believe. So this is a big place. So we read in the verse, Jesus in his introduction, Jesus in the midst, in verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The church of Ephesus, Jesus reminds them that he is the one. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He is the one who is standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars, he's already revealed to us the meaning of the seven stars are the messengers or the angels of the seven churches, Revelation 1.20. Jesus tells us this one. We don't even have to guess. What's the seven stars mean? Well, Jesus said they represent the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, the word angel in the Greek is really the word messenger. And so it could mean an angel from heaven. It could mean the pastor over the fellowship. It could be that both is true. I like to think that, that the Lord has angels watching over his various fellowships throughout the world and that the Lord is holding the pastors of the faithful churches in his hand but look at this Ephesus was not faithful at this time at the Lord yet the Lord still had the angel in his right hand the Lord was still standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands again the Lord has already told us what the lampstands represent the seven lampstands represented the seven churches so one of the lampstands represented the church of Ephesus and the Lord is saying I'm still standing in your midst I'm still here I'm still with you I'm still holding your messenger, your angel in my hand, but I have a few things against you. Verses 2 through 4, he says, I know your works, your labors, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have preserved and have patience. You have labored for my name's sake, but have not become weary. The church of Ephesus, they had works, they had labors, they had patience, which is hard to have. They would not bear with those who were evil. They were obedient to the word of God to test those who claimed to be apostles, and they tested some and found them to be liars. They were, according to the word of the Lord, they were preserving, they were patient, they did not grow weary. In their labors, they were working hard for Jesus. They were very attractive, and many have resembled this in our churches today. We have in our churches today very active places that they're bustling with energy and people just going at it and working hard and not growing weary and sometimes growing weary. 
And these are good characteristics for any church to have. But they were missing one important key. As Jesus continued, he said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this I have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Although this fellowship was bustling with energy, physical energy taking place, Jesus saw that they had neglected their first love. They had neglected their first love. Now, I titled this The Loveless Church. And as I stood before you today and looked at the word before I even read it, my thought that came in my mind was the misplaced love church. They had misplaced their love. They had misplaced their love that they had first and foremost with Christ, and now they love the place that they had built, the energy that they had, all the various ministries that was taking place. You got a need, we can meet it. We're the church. We're strong. We're super. Come to us and we'll meet your need, no matter what it is. I've discovered through the years, and there's been a number of years now in my life, that when a church, and it's not that churches shouldn't try to meet the needs of their community. And I think God has slated some churches to do special works within their community. But if you're trying to grow a church by meeting the current need of the community, you will find as soon as you meet that need that there'll be a new need arising over here. You'll always be chasing the needs that are in a community. So, Although it's good to meet the needs that's found within our community, and we need to realize we can't do everything. It seems like Ephesus was attempting to do so. They were doing a lot in the name of Jesus Christ. But they had left their first love. And I believe personally that they had misplaced their love. They went from loving Jesus Christ and the faith and the grace that they had been birthed in to loving the work of the ministry. And it became work, and they enjoyed the work. They didn't even grow tired doing the work. Oh, I love it. But they had left their first love. It got so bad in the church in Galatians, Paul had written to them in Galatians 5.4, saying, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. And there is a place where we can get wrapped up in doing the works and we can get away from the first love. We can get away from remembering, and that's the call that the Lord gives to them, remembering those first days of ministry. The spiritual condition was more than letting their love grow cold. They had left their first love. They had misplaced their love for something else. For the activity, the bustling activity of the fellowship, which Jesus said, it's good. The work is good. But forgetting your first love, that's not good. There are some churches that are very busy in the works that they do. But they have so forgotten the first works, what called them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself, that they no longer preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So although they're active and although they're meeting the needs of their community, they may lack in leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, Jesus said, I have this one thing that is for you. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we're going to address this next week because Jesus mentions it again to the compromising church. And we'll look at that next week when we look at the church of Pergamus about the Nicolaitans and what that might actually be talking about there. But Jesus called them to remember and to repent. He called them to remember from where you have fallen. And this form of the Greek word that's translated as remember here, it's in the present active imperative. It's a present active imperative. And so it is that sense of continually remembering. Keep on remembering. We are to constantly remember the Lord's work of salvation in our lives when we first believe, not that we are to be perhaps as immature believers as when we first came to faith. No, we're to grow in our faith, but we're to capture that love that we have for Jesus when we were first saved. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, Knowing that a man is not justified by works or of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even if we believe in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And so it's not through our works, though we may be very busy working for Christ, we are justified by faith in Christ alone and no other. And so he said, remember the first works and repent and do the first works. Repent, it's a Greek word that means to change one's way of life, to change direction, a complete change, to turn it around and get back on track, we might say. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 tells us, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, I like that, after you were illuminated, after the light switched on. You endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle by both being reproached and through tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. The author of Hebrews told the church to recall the former days. Think back at the beginning. Lately, I have been striving to remember some of the first works while Lily and I were in our 20s. I know it might be hard to believe, but we actually at one time, we were kids with kids when we were in our 20s, striving to serve the Lord, to do ministry. In our 30s, in the work of God in our lives, kind of guiding, opening doors for us, exploring those doors that he was opening. Quite often, it would find us working with youth, as it often does. Oh, I want to be a pastor, I said. Oh, you want to work with the youth? Oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> Actually, I did at the time. 
um, working youth ministry and kind of cut your teeth teaching the youth and learning how to handle the Word of God and learning how to uh, answer questions. And they have great questions. And it's not that I want to go back to those early days in the sense, well, physically maybe my body would be great if I could go back there, but that's not going to happen. But I do want to capture the venture of faith that we had in those early days, the same ventures that caused us to sell what we had here and move to California, that I could go to school and then to two years later reverse it all and come back to Illinois and, and see what the Lord would have for us here. We were cutting ties. We were doing, from the world's perspective, from our parents' perspective, are you kidding me? You're leaving your jobs? John, you make 25 bucks an hour. I said, I know that. What are you going to make when you go to California? 650. Oh, wow. It's like, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> but the Lord was in it, and we survived. We lived. The only time I ever owned a pair of Air Jordans in my life was when I lived in California. One of the kids in the high school, I was a janitor. He left his shoes. They sat around for several months. They knew that the janitors made nothing for their wages. And so they would send the lost and found stuff. And it was a big church, 30,000 people attending weekly, plus a, a grade school and high school. And so they had a lot of lost and found at that church. Every three months they would send that stuff to Mexico, but they, they knew the poor janitors. Hey, it's going to Mexico. You guys, you got first dibs. I know Mexico's bad, but you guys are in worse shape, so we'll, we'll take care of you. Those were great tennis shoes. <laughs> I'm wanting to capture those early days in my life, Lily's life as well. Not that we would relive the days. We're not going to do that but we might encourage the next generation of worshipers to have their own ventures of faith. What's it going to be for you that the Lord is calling you to do that seems crazy for your family? And they'll tell you so. It's like, uh, I know it sounds crazy, but this is what the Lord's calling us to do. And we did. We need to take those ventures of faith. And so we, we need to remember the first loves. We can be bustling with energy and the Lord said these things you're doing it's good but you forgot about me you forgot about the first works you need to go back there remember and repent and then he promises he who has ears let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him overcomes I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God do you know biblically the last time the tree of life was mentioned in scripture was in Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 in all of the Bible, we come to the last book of the Bible. It mentions something that's found in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis in the third chapter, verse 24, where it says, And God placed cherubim at the east end of the Garden of Eden with flaming swords which turned every way to guard the way for the tree of life. Now at that time, Adam and Eve had fell into sin and God put them out of the garden where he had placed them that they could watch over and care for that garden. But because of their sinful state, he said, 
lest they should reach out and take from the tree of life. There was never a command to Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of life. But once they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when sin entered into their heart because of their disobedience to God, God set them outside of the garden that they would not take the tree of life in a fallen state, a fallen condition. Has no way to live out eternity. There are people who want to go to hell and party with their friends. It's no way to live out eternity in a fallen state. It will not be a place of partying with your friends. So in God's grace, he said, I'm not going to let you even have access to it. But now we find here in Revelation 2.7 that the tree still exists and it's in the midst of the paradise of God. It's still there. And now God says, Jesus says, to those who overcome, to those who overcome, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now there's open access to the tree through the blood of Jesus Christ to those who are born again. As it says in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. He who is overcomes, he, <laughs> I'm going to read it right now. Who is he who overcomes the world? I don't even have to look at it. I know what it says. Bifocals are, they trip you up sometimes. Just don't get old, kids. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. To those who overcome, I give the tree of life that you may eat it. Who are those who overcome? John says, he who overcomes is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus promised the overcomers free access to the tree of life. Then we move to the next church, the church of Smyrna. Verses 8 through 11, I'll read the context for us. And the angel of the church of Smyrna write. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And so we begin with the church of Smyrna. Let's get a little background to Smyrna. I've already shared with you that it's only found here in the book of Revelation. We don't read about it anywhere else in the Bible. It's only named twice in the book of Revelation uh, in verse 11 of chapter 1 and here in verse 8 of chapter 2 where God names the church of Smyrna. Its name means bitter and it's actually translated from the word myrrh. Now myrrh is a fragrance that comes from 
The crushing of the myrrh of the plant, the products of the myrrh, comes from the crushing of this plant, the oil that comes through. It's been used for not only anointing oil and perfume for embalming and medication for thousands of years. There is a a vial of myrrh in my house. And someone in our house uses it every day. It's not me. But I know what myrrh is like. It's very thick and it's hard to get out. The church of Smyrna was being crushed by heavy persecution. Many within the church were very poor, but we notice that Jesus saw them in a different light. He says, but you are rich. So he saw them in a different light. They would soon to be forced to worship Caesar or face the consequences, which means torture or death. Yet their crushing persecution caused them to cling to Jesus all the more, which made them a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the aroma of death. Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, I hate you. You're the aroma of death. And that's becoming... More and more we see in this country today. But to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Oh, you're a Christian? There's something about you. I want what you have. It's aroma of life. Smyrna was about 40 miles north of Ephesus. The celebrated Polycarp ministered to this place, actually was martyred there according to tradition. He was a pupil of John the apostle that was given this revelation by Jesus. And Jesus wrote, again, the format, he wrote to the church of Smyrna, saying these are the things, says the first and the last, he who was dead and came to life. And Jesus previously revealed this in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And so he's referring back to that vision, the things which are that John saw. And now to the church, he says, I am the first and the last. I am he who was dead and came to life. The Bible tells us in Colossians 1, 15 through 18, speaking of Jesus, saying he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all the nations. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. He's holding them together. They consist. He is the head of the body, the church. He who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead and in all things that he may have preeminence. I am the first and the last. I am he who was dead, but I am alive forevermore. This is Jesus. By reminding the church of Smyrna of his death and his resurrection, Jesus gives this church who is about to suffer some great persecution, he gives them hope. John 15, 20 says, Remember the word which I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I know there's a lot of the church today that doesn't teach 
They teach, come to Jesus, you'll have a great life. The Bible teaches, come to Jesus, and you'll probably suffer persecution. You're going to suffer for it. But that's not an attractive message, is it? But it's a true message. So he says to this church, verses 9 and 10, I know your works, tribulation, poverty. And then he says, but you are rich. We need to see that. The works that the believers of Smyrna had described as tribulation and poverty, not as glamorous as that of Ephesus. Ephesus had, from the world's perspective, everything going for them. But they had left their first love. Here the church of Smyrna had nothing going for them. They were in tribulation. They were in poverty. And yet God saw them, Jesus saw them in a different light. Jesus saw them as being rich. It reminds us of, and I used this last week in our Mother's Day message, but when Samuel came to anoint David as king over Israel, he didn't know what son of Jesse he was going to anoint. He didn't know David. God didn't tell him. He just said, go to the Jesse and anoint one of his sons, I'll tell you, when you get there. And so he saw Jesse's firstborn son and said, surely this is the man. Look at that guy. Man, he looks he looks kingly. Lord, is this the one? And the Lord said, nope, not the one. And in fact, Samuel came to Jesse. Samuel said, I'm going to offer sacrifices here. We're going to eat together, call your family together. Jesse didn't even think to get David. And Samuel went through the list. Is this one, Lord? Nope, he's not the one. Is this one, Lord? Nope, he's not the one. And finally, Samuel said to Jesse, do you have another son? Oh, yeah, David? He's out with the sheep. Well, go get him. And he was the one. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, nor at his physical stature, because I refuse him. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The world looked at Smyrna and said, You guys are in bad shape. You're in poverty. You're suffering persecution. That's no way to be, the world would say. And the Lord looked at Smyrna and said, You guys are rich. You're rich, rich in faith. As James wrote in James 2, verses 5 and 6, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? It appears that the church of Smyrna had problems with the Jewish population. Perhaps there were Judaizers there who were teaching that works for salvation the only way to christ was through their works and they rejected that they had problems in fact jesus said they say there are jews but they're actually of the synagogue of satan i do not receive them paul wrote about this class of jews physical jews in romans 2:29, saying but he is a jew who is one inwardly and the circumcision that of, of the heart and of the spirit not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but that of God. There were the physical circumcised of the lineage of Abraham, but Jesus said they may physically be Jews, but they are not. 
because he is a Jew, as Paul tells us in Romans 2.29, one who is circumcised inwardly, circumcision of the hearts. And God even spoke this word to the Jews in Jeremiah 4.4, saying, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. Your heart is hard against the Lord. Take away that hardness. Open your heart up to Jesus. Regarding the compromised church in the United States, the late Dr. D.J. Kennedy had said, the vast majority of people who are members of churches in America today are not Christians. I say that without the slightest fear of contradiction. I base that on empirical evidence of 24 years of examining thousands of people. He looked and examined the people's lives. He said, though you're part of a church, you're not a Christian. And that's true in many churches of our world today. We need that circumcision of the heart. Philippians 3.3 says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision that... We are those who put our confidence in Christ Jesus and His work on the cross, not our works. Additionally, Satan plays an active role in persecuting the church here in Smyrna. He has, was about to cause many of them to suffer, to be thrown into prison. Jesus said, you are going to be tested for 10 days. Now, historically, there are some who connect this to 10 Roman emperors. We'll look at that as we do a review of the seven churches, the historical look at this. But Jesus says, you're going to suffer persecution. It's coming. And yet we don't know the total number of people who were martyred for Christ. Some say that some six million were martyred for Christ during this season of persecution, during the ten days which some have connected to ten Roman emperors that ruled over Rome at that time, spanning over a period of hundreds of years. But no matter the actual number, those who came under this persecution, they found that their faith was being tested. And Jesus promised, he said, be faithful until death. Now for some, that meant that they would die while being persecuted. That's a hard way to go. But also we can look at it this way. Maybe we won't die in persecution, but we can remain faithful until death. If the Lord tarries, we're all going to die, some of us sooner than others. But will we remain faithful until death? That's what the Lord required of them. Remain faithful until death, and you will be crowned a crown of life. In the New Testament, there are several crowns that believers will receive according to the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4.8, there will be those who receive the crown of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 9.25, an imperishable crown. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, a crown of rejoicing. 1 Peter 5.4, the crown of glory. James 1.13, and here in our text, the crown of life. And yet we need to understand that Jesus bore the Stephanos, the crown of thorns, that we might be able to receive these other crowns, the imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, 
the crown of life. So to he who overcomes, he says again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. To the seven churches, this is something that Jesus said to each of the seven churches. To he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. He said that to each of them. Do you have ears? Can you hear? Listen up to he who overcomes. When Jesus gave his first parable, the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 6, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's obvious that all those who heard Jesus give that parable on that day, the parable of the sower, they all had ears to hear the message that Jesus was teaching them that day. They had physical ears to hear, but the reason the Lord began to speak in parables is because many of them lacked spiritual ears to hear. They lacked spiritual understanding. So actually, the Lord is telling his church, I know you have physical ears, but I want you to hear spiritually, the spiritual condition of this thing. It's important that we continue to keep our spiritual ears in tune with the things of God. When... I got in my truck the other day, Friday. I was getting some things uh, pre-retreat. What do I need to go to the men's retreat? Oh, yeah, I need earplugs. Have you ever been to a men's retreat? I have. And I learned many years ago that guys snore. And the best thing that you can have is earplugs for the retreats and it's better now. We're kind of like in a little hotel, and I only had to deal with one snoring person in my room. Um, but there was a time many years ago, I invited the guy from my work. He was the job superintendent for junior high school that we were building. I was the foreman for the bricklayers from scratch building that's over, still standing, amazing. Still standing in Vernon Hills, junior high school there. And I, I got to talk to this job superintendent and I invited him to the men's retreat. He was my roommate. I've rarely heard somebody snore so bad in my life. So, so bad that I had to get out of the room. But we were housed in this old camp building that was without any insulation. Um, it was just, I think, a, a three-story building that was built with sticks, wood, uh, siding and some wood on the inside and it was built like in the late 1800s and it looked like it was too and so I thought man there's a lot of rooms here I'll just find another room and so I grabbed my sleeping bag I drifted down to an empty room I laid down and I believe I counted five different guys snoring it's like I'm never going to sleep in this place and so I went out to my truck a Nissan pickup truck Nissans are not big trucks they're bigger than they were then. And so it was a bench seat. I couldn't lay across the bench. And so I folded up my knees. I laid down. I turned down the radio on the radio and I went to sleep. So I slept in the truck that night. It was chilly. It was in the springtime. So my roommate woke up and was like, man, John must be, what a spiritual guy. He's up early reading the Bible. He said he came out of the 
place and he was walking by the vehicles and he heard the radio playing. It's like somebody's left their car radio on and he walked over and looked in the window and there I was, all cramped up in the Nissan, fast asleep. He knew why I left the room that night. We have ears to hear. Sometimes we're not in tune with the Lord. So I was in my truck coming from Walmart. I was listening to social media on my phone, some Bible teacher, and it got turned off and and the radio came on and it was supposed to be 101.5 FM, but whatever it was, it wasn't 101.5 FM. It's like, what is this? 1960s something. Who is this? This isn't our station. My truck was out of tune. It was dialed in in the wrong spot. That can happen to us. He who has an ear, let him hear. Sometimes we have ears that we can hear, but we're not in tune. We're not in tune to hear the frequency of the Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts. And we need to dial it in that we can hear what the Lord has to say to his church. It's important that we dial in to this church. He promised those who overcome, you will not be hurt by the second death. He did not say that they would not face death, but he said you will not be hurt by the second death. The second death refers to that final judgment of all those who have not received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Revelation 26, we'll see it again. Blessed And holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be the priest of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. John 16.33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You're going to have tribulation. That's just how it is in this world. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 16:33. In this world you'll have tribulation. I don't like that Jesus. He goes, "Yeah, I know, but know this, I have overcome the world." And if you overcome through the spirit of Christ, then you will not be hurt by the second death. If you overcome, I will allow you to eat from the tree of life that's in the midst of paradise of God. I like fruit trees. I like when they're in bloom and that you can just at that point where you can walk up and the fruit is ready and you can pick it and eat that first fruit of your tree that you have. Can you envision with me what it will be like to walk up to the tree of life? And the Lord's, you're you're like, Lord, really? Yeah, go ahead. Climb it. Get up in there. See that big juicy one on the top? Go for it. It's yours. One day to those who overcome. Father, we thank you for this, your word you have given us this day. Lord, I want to just close out in a a time of worship. For our church, here, Lord, I want to open up the prayer benches. Today, perhaps, Lord, spiritually, you have been speaking to this fellowship And we want to give opportunity for those who would like to come to just come and kneel and spend time with you in prayer as we close out in this last song. Lord, we desire to work. You said to the people 
He who has an ear, let him hear. Lord, we all have ears. But Lord, are we spiritually in tune to that which you are speaking to your church today? If we are not, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get in tune, to fix the dial, that we can dial in on what you would have for us this day. We thank you, Lord, for your promises. To the two churches that we've looked at today, the Church of Ephesus, Lord, you promised that they would be able to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's a promise, Lord, that remains to all those who overcome to us this day. To the Church of Smyrna, you promised that they would not be hurt by the second death. That is a promise that remains to us today, Lord. To those who follow you in life-saving faith, we give you thanks and we give you praise this day. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to go ahead and stand and worship. I'm going to ask that uh, if you have a prayer need, please come. Uh, watch the camera. But come and pray. Use the prayer benches. We haven't used them in a while, so I just want to open it up again. I want to do church, and I know you guys do too. I want to do church before COVID. I want to be open. I want to fellowship one another. I want to see the body of Christ ministering to one another. So let's do church. Let's seek God's face that we might believe, receive, grow, and go as the word tells us. And also that we would know Jesus Christ. If you have questions, would like to support our ministry, please go to cclv.org. You can find out information there. You can email us there. You can find a way to donate to our church. That's those who are listening to the on the radio now or watching through Facebook, cclv.org. This coming Wednesday, we're going to finish out the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We'll be doing that, Lord willing, this coming Wednesday, the book of Matthew, chapter 28. And let's take time to worship now.